Welcome to the Her God Speaks podcast special Tuesday feature called Hermeneutics Tuesdays. Yes, that's Tuesdays with an H, where we are seeking to become better interpreters of the Bible one 10-minute episode at a time. I'm your host, April Spears. Let's learn stuff together. So last week, we took what we've learned about the importance of historical context and applied it to John 4 in Jesus's conversation with the woman at the well. I want to do the same thing today, but with the historical context of Holy Week, which turns out to be the wider historical context for the entire New Testament. Now, I am utterly fascinated by the fact that I have been an active member of a church with a very high view of the Bible for my entire 42 years of life. I have been in dozens of Bible studies. I even have a seminary degree, but I did not learn about the history I'm about to share with you until around, I don't know, two years ago. Now, where did I finally learn this incredibly important historical context? Was it at church? Was it at a Bible study? Was it in seminary? No, it was on a podcast. So here I am, paying it forward. (laughs) In their book, The New Testament and Its World, N.T. Wright and Michael Byrd make the claim that we cannot understand the New Testament unless we make sense of the historical environment in which the early church was conceived and grew in the first century A.D., To understand the origin of Christianity and the meaning of the first believer's theology demands that we know the historical setting and the social, cultural, and religious world in which Jesus and the apostles lived. I wholeheartedly agree with that statement. You don't know what you're missing until someone actually takes the time to fill you in on that context. And when they do, it really does help so many things in the New Testament, the Gospels in particular, make a lot more sense. So let's get in a time machine and travel way back to the Second Temple period and see what we find. I wish I had a really cool time travel music. There we go. That's my own personal sound effect. You're welcome. Well, around 587 BC, the first temple in Jerusalem, Solomon built that one. Uh, it had been destroyed and the inhabitants of Judah taken into exile in Babylon. This period of Babylonian exile was a very dark time in Israel's history and led to some serious questions about Yahweh's faithfulness, whether or not he had utterly forsaken them, because that's sure what it felt like. Well, prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah reminded them that God had not forsaken them. And they spoke about a time when God would deliver his people out of exile through a new Exodus with a new Davidic king, a new temple, and with God himself returning to dwell in that new temple. Well, around 50 years after the destruction of the first temple, this promise came true. Well, sort of. In 539 BC, the Babylonians were defeated by the Persians and the king of Persia allowed the Jews to return to their homeland and rebuild the temple. You can read all about this in Ezra and Nehemiah. Sadly, 
even though some of the Jews were back in the land and the second temple was built in Jerusalem, things fell way short of the prophetic hope of restoration that they all longed for. The 12 tribes were not all regathered. There was no new Davidic king. The nations were not swarming to Zion to worship Yahweh. And most notably, God's glory did not fill that second temple. So instead of living under the glorious reign of God, the Jews lived under the power of one pagan king after another. So in a way, the exile never really ended. Unfortunately, things were about to get a whole lot worse. In the 4th century BC, Alexander the Great went wild and his army swept through most of the known world, imposing Greek culture wherever they went. This mass Hellenization led to all kinds of challenging dynamics within the Jewish culture. Well, after Alexander the Great passed off the scene, his kingdom was divided among three of his generals and their families. We're going to fast forward uh, through a lot of that and land around 200 BC when Judea falls under Seleucid rule. Now, the name related to this time period that we all need to know is Antiochus Epiphanes IV. He is a very dark character in the history of Judaism. The oppression of the Jewish people that took place under his rule is, it's, it's incomprehensible, just utterly horrifying. When 167 BC, he took over the temple in Jerusalem, deliberately desecrating it by slaughtering a pig, an unclean animal, on the altar and sprinkling its blood throughout. He established worship of himself there instead and ordered that all of the towns of Judea uh, offer sacrifices to his gods. He sent inspectors to go town by town enforcing this decree. Once again, much like in the days of the Babylonian exile, the Jews were not independent once again, they were under the thumb of a foreign oppressing force. Once again, they were fighting an uphill battle to preserve their cultural and spiritual identity. All of this was a far cry from the kingdom of God they hoped for. Well, a few years later, things began to turn around. Out of this very dark, seemingly hopeless situation arose two heroes named Mattathias and his son, Judas. Now in the town of Modin, I think that's how you say it, M-O-D-E-I-N, one of the townspeople volunteered to follow the orders of Antiochus Epiphanes by making a sacrifice to his gods. Well, an elderly priest named Mattathias stabbed the guy to death killed the king's inspector, and tore down the altar. And on his deathbed, with his five sons gathered around him, he said, avenge the wrong done to your people. Pay back the Gentiles in full. And that's a direct quote from 1 Maccabees 
chapter 2, verses 67 and 68. Now, one of Mattathias' sons named Judas took the charge and led a successful rebellion against the Seleucids. It was also a very violent rebellion, which is why Judas earned himself the nickname Maccabeus, which means the hammer. Such a cool nickname, right? Now, three years to the day, After the temple's desecration by Antiochus Epiphanes IV, on December 25th, 164 BC, Judas Maccabeus cleansed and reconsecrated it. The festival of Hanukkah was added to the Jewish calendar, and this Maccabean revolt became as formative and as much an identity marker as the Exodus and other great events in Israel's history. The power vacuum created by the decline of the Seleucid kingdom meant that by 142 BC, the Hasmoneans, Mattathias and Judas's family, were finally able to achieve complete independence from foreign rule for the Jewish nation for the first time in half a millennium. Their own coins were even being minted. What they had been anticipating for so long seemed to have finally arrived. Unfortunately, it wasn't long before internal conflict led to breakdown of the Hasmonean dynasty. For a couple of years, there was intense optimism and celebration, joy, delight. But as time went by, they learned that it's one thing to win the peace is a whole different thing to keep the peace. As it turns out, the Hasmoneans were not all they were cracked up to be. They were not the righteous rulers the people would have hoped for. Because of this, there arose Jewish groups that were really concerned for the integrity and the leadership, uh, obedience to Torah, glory of God, righteousness among God's people. A morally compromised ruling class was not acceptable to them. Interesting to note that the Pharisees of Jesus's day could trace their origins to this period. Of unrest. And the next part of the story is unfortunately more bad news. By 63 BC, Rome arrives and takes over. So by the time Jesus shows up around 60 years later, it is the case that once again, the Jews in the land are suffering under the oppressive iron fist of a foreign occupying army that is defiling God's land and kicking around his people. So at this point, you can imagine the Jews are on high alert for another hero. And when they think of who that hero is going to be, they think of Judas the hammer. The Maccabean revolt is their template. A violent military overthrow of the Romans is their expectation. Now, all of that is the necessary background for understanding the events of Holy Week, particularly Palm Sunday. I want to read you an excerpt from the book Fight Like Jesus by Jason Porterfield. He writes, Contrary to what church reenactments of this scene may lead you to believe, palm branches did not function as the ancient equivalent of those giant foam hands we see at sporting events. Waving them did not mean, You're awesome, Jesus! I'm your number one fan! In Jesus's day, palm branches were a politically loaded symbol that reminded the Jewish people of a significant historical event. That event, of course, was the Maccabean Revolt. 
Jason continues. As Judas the Hammer made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem and proceeded to cleanse the temple, his followers waved, you guessed it, palm branches. You can read about this in 2 Maccabees 10, 1 through 9. From then on, palms became a key symbol of Israel's quest for independence. Back then, palm branches carried the exact same meaning as a separatist movement's flag does today. Waving them signified a desire to break free from foreign occupation. What's more, waving them at Jesus meant the crowd believed he would be their liberator, end quote. But throughout the Gospels, Jesus works off a very different script than the Maccabean revolt script they all had on their minds, doesn't he? In fact, he comes up with a plan before his entry into Jerusalem to communicate to the people that he is no Judas Maccabeus. That plan involved a donkey, a symbol of humility and lowliness, not of great military exploits, a gentle creature consistent with Jesus's ethic of nonviolence. In riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, not a horse, Jesus connected his mission to the words of Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble, and riding on a donkey. Now, the next verse of Zechariah 9 doesn't get as much attention, but it's so important. Here's verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The bow of war will be removed. So every symbol of violence, every symbol of conquest, every symbol of overthrow, it's gone. And then this, and he will proclaim peace to the nations. It is so important for us to understand that Jesus didn't choose palm branches. The people did. They wanted him to overthrow their enemies, but Jesus was planning to die for his enemies. There would be violence, but not against Rome. The only hammer in this story would be the one pounding the nails through Jesus's body. I've been racking my brain for reasons why, until this past Sunday, I have never heard anyone include this historical context in a sermon. I did an informal poll on the Her God Speaks Instagram account, and of the 187 people who responded, 162 of them had never heard it either. Now, I'm choosing to believe that it's an unintentional oversight, or maybe it's fear that congregations may find it boring. But there's a little piece of my brain that keeps wondering if maybe, just maybe, Seeing those palm branches for what they really are is just a little too inconsistent with American militarism and the Christian nationalism that pervades so many conservative evangelical spaces. Maybe the sharp contrast 
between the people's choice of palm branches and Jesus's choice of a donkey is just too hard a sell in most American churches today. And maybe, just maybe, we ought to give that some long, careful, self-reflective thought this week. I know I am. Happy Easter, friends. Happy Easter, friends.